We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to further the conversation from yesterday on a grab bag of the weekly news, and I'll answer the question that I didn't get time to get to, and that is, how do we respond? Is it hopeless? How should the Christian conservative respond to a world gone mad? I'll give you the answer to this question that I gave to Elisa Childers on her podcast this past week. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening to the show. All right, yesterday I I went through a grab bag of news. I covered AOC and her claims that Donald Trump is the stronger candidate for the Republican Party than, than Ron DeSantis, and I explained to you why. Obviously, I think the Democrats want Donald Trump. Now, you may say, so what? Good. He's our best nominee anyway. That's your decision. But I think it's irrefutable that the Democrats are praying that Republicans select Donald Trump as their nominee for 2024, the presidential race. I think that's irrefutable. Uh, Why? We need to ask ourselves the question, why? Why do our opponents want us to choose one particular individual. If they were pushing for Tim Scott, if they were pushing for uh, Nikki Haley, if they were pushing for Mike Pence, we should ask ourselves why. Why do the Democrats desperately want us to select one individual? If they were rallying around Ron DeSantis, we should ask the same question. When your opponents want you to do something, you would be foolish not to ask yourself the question why. So, When we're responding to AOC and her ilk, when they say, well, Donald Trump is a much stronger candidate than Ron DeSantis, it should cause us to tap the brakes a bit and just ask a good question. Why? Why do they want that? So I asked that question yesterday with regard to AOC. Now, we also talked about other news yesterday. I talked about Tucker Carlson, we talked about climate change, we talked about a variety of different things that are in the news right now. Today, I want to further the conversation, however, of something that I didn't get time to do yesterday, and that was this. I said, in the face of all of this bad news, this craziness that we see every time we turn on the TV, open a newspaper, listen to a podcast, go to cable TV, or whatever we do, to um, digest our news, to acquire the information that's necessary for us to understand what's going on around us as we read news about the economy, as we read news about the climate and weather, as we read news about politics and President Joe Biden versus potential nominee Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, you fill in the blank. As we digest this news, as we watch story after story after story of violence and vitriol in the streets, that I would argue is fomented by a, a worldview. It's the consequences of a, of a bunch of given ideas. And I argue that those ideas that are bad, that have the consequence of violence rather than virtue, are the ideas of our time. 
the ideas that are being promoted and taught in our schools. Victimization, for example, rather than virtue. We're teaching every, every student that they are a victim, that they're a victim of someone else's privilege. That is the basic premise of critical theory, that there is class conflict. There's conflict between you and others, and that the others, whoever you say they are, are at fault. They're the ones who have caused you problems. It's not your personal responsibility. It's their fault. You never look in the mirror and confess. You never look at yourself and repent. You you do the exact opposite of the biblical worldview and what the scriptures call us to do. Rather than personal reflection, personal remorse, and personal confession and repentance, you look out the window and you blame everyone else for all that ails you and all that ails culture. This is critical theory. It teaches the individual as well as subgroups of the human race to blame rather than to believe in God and confess before him. It elevates the individual or the group as God, and it diminishes everyone else that doesn't look like the individual, think like the individual, walk and talk like the individual, and the group that represents him or her as being the enemy, as being lesser than, and the subject to be ruled over by the gods of our modern day and our modern time. It's dominance. It's power. It's the rule of the gang. It's the tyranny of one that I've talked about before. But in the face of all this, you could easily say, what are we going to do? How do we respond to this? For those of us, and I would argue it's still at least 50% of the American population, that still has some understanding of the basic parameters of freedom, the, the basic uh, assumptions of a free society that are grounded in a biblical worldview, that a man's word is his bond, a handshake means something, that it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal, it's, it's wrong to degrade other people, that men should be chivalrous rather than selfish, that women are women, and they're not men, and women have the right to their own dignity. They shouldn't be used by men. They shouldn't be considered to be, be mere chattel that don't have rights in society. Uh, that African Americans are people too, and that whites who believe otherwise are evil. They're bigots. They're racists. That the KKK was wrong, and that Martin Luther King Jr. was right, that all these things that have been assumed within our culture as, as, as givens, that the Holocaust was evil, it was a bad thing, that the use and abuse of children by adults for adult pleasure is just one of the most abhor abhorrent things, one of the most evil things that any society could bring upon its progeny. I mean, there, these are basic assumptions that... In the heartland, we still have some sort of memory, uh, cultural memory, uh, soul memory. Our soul still is, a, is impacted positively by these assumptions. But it appears that in some areas of our country, there's nothing left controlling the human libido to the point where you can have youth dancing in the streets in, in Chicago, for example, rioting, destroying cars, destroying property, and yet they have no conscience. They don't, there's nothing to control them. Not only 
is there no control from the police any longer because the left has defunded the police and disparaged the police, maligned them, called them the problem rather than rightly identify the problem being the human heart and soul that leads people to behave this way in the first place. So there's nothing left to control. There's no self-control because there's no conscience and there's no social control because there's no law enforcement. It's chaos. It's chaos. So how do we respond? Should we just throw up our hands and say, it's lost. Jesus, please come quickly. Or is there a different response that we are taught, encouraged, admonished, told, and demanded in Scripture? Is there a different response that the faithful, the believers, the church should have in the, in the face of such chaos, in the face of crisis? I'm going to give you the answer to this question after we take a break, because I was on a podcast with Elisa Childers this last couple days, and she asked the question at the end of the podcast, what are we to do? Is there hope? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, The Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group, proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. Again, I really appreciate you listening to the show. For those of you who subscribe to The Rebellion on patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper, D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R, a special thank you. It's your monthly support and contributions that make this worth my time, worth worth spending the hours that you have to spend to try to read up and give the audience something meaningful, something worth to listen. A couple extra arrows in your quiver, if you will, as you go about the daily fight. Fight the good fight for Christ and his kingdom. Reclaim every inch for Christ and his kingdom. Engage in the market square of ideas. Be salt and light. Salt to a culture that's rotting and light to a world that's very dark. Uh, hide, don't hide your light under a bushel. This is what Jesus told us. These are the words of God himself, the second person, the son of God, the son of man, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. Now, why do I always say that on this show? 
because I think even Christians sometimes, at least subconsciously, dumb down the definition of who Jesus is. We act as if he's just a a good friend, you know, a fun uncle, or maybe that uh, popular big brother who just smiles and hugs and laughs and jokes. Uh, That's the way we sometimes, in fact, it's the way much of the modern evangelical church behaves when it comes to Jesus. We, We don't really act as if we believe that he's God himself, God incarnate, the word made flesh and dwelling among us, without which nothing was made that is made. He is the creator of all. We act as if he's not going to come at the end of days and judge the living and the dead. We act as if he isn't going to be harsh with anyone. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do, Jesus will give you a great big group hug, a kumbaya moment at the end of days. So eat, drink, and be merry. For some more, for tomorrow you shall die, and when you do, we'll all just rally around the maypole in eternity and dance in the love of Christ and bask in each other's glory. It seems at times as if the woke church, the evangelical church, the church that has elevated kindness above truth is the church that believes that rather than believes in the Jesus of the creeds, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus of the Old Testament. Because remember I've said before that if you believe in the biblical God, then you have to conclude that the Old Testament is just as inspired by Jesus as is the New Testament. We don't have two gods here. We don't have the harsh, unloving God, judgmental God, the mean, cruel God of the Old Testament, and this new God, the second God of Jesus, the loving, affectionate, affirming God of the New Testament. No, you can't have two gods because Christian Christians don't believe in polytheism. Christians are monotheists. We believe in one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because we believe that, Jesus has to be just as much the God of the Old Testament as he is the God of the New Testament. So if you're attending an evangelical church and you're you're being taught something different, either explicitly or implicitly, I would argue you're being taught something that's antithetical, opposite to biblical orthodoxy. Rather, it's explicit or implicit teaching and preaching in your local church, the affirming church, the church that has dumbed down the definition of love to nothing but tolerance and acceptance and maybe even sex. That affirming church is not a biblical church. It's a church that wants to be liked rather than a church that wants to be right. It's the church of a helicopter parent, if you will, that wants to be the best friend to their sons and daughters rather than be a mom and dad, an authoritarian, a disciplinarian, a mentor, a coach, a teacher who will do the uncomfortable thing and stand in the way of the child and say, stop it, you can't do that any longer because if you do, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to kill yourself. Yes, I will be harsh, I will stand in your way, I will stop you if you want to run out into the middle of the road, into the highway, either figuratively or in reality. I won't let you do that because you will hurt yourself. There are 
sharp edges to my love because I love you enough to say no. So this false conflation of love, tolerance, affirmation, and even the openness to uh, just celebrate any sexual act that's done under the claim, the false claim, I would argue, of love, that's not love. We need to define love rightly. And I probably won't have a lot of time to get into it on today's show, but I'll tease you for tomorrow's show. I'm going to go through a recent article by Peter Jones, Dr. Peter Jones, of Escondido, California, Westminster Theological Seminary, the author of several books on what he calls one-ism and two-ism, where he talks about the binary and the non-binary arguments of progressivism versus traditionalism, the biblical worldview versus the postmodern worldview, and the conflict between the two, the coexistence argument versus the contradiction argument. He talks about that, and then he wraps a bow around the entire conversation by talking about love and the proper definition of love. The only solution, the only response to the crisis of our time is love which is a good segue for me to get into today's topic in the last few minutes of this show. So I spent a lot of time in the introduction, but now I want to answer the question. What are we to do? Again, the context for this is I was on Elisa Childers' podcast. Now, if you don't listen to Elisa, you need to. She is a rock star. She's rock solid. She actually ventured into the territory of progressive Christianity at a earlier part of her life. She was in the Christian contemporary music uh, market. She was part of a popular group. And within that Christian contemporary music world, she got exposed to a variety of different evangelical movements and churches, and she was actually buying into some of the progressive arguments for Christianity. But she recognized by God's grace that there was something wrong with this. And that progressive Christianity was not necessarily one and the same with biblical Christianity, with orthodoxy. So with intellectual honesty and integrity, she started investigating this, and she's drawn some very clear conclusions that stated simply in Everett Piper terms, biblical Christianity represents the one true God, whereas progressive Christianity is a compromise. It's a compromise that actually results in us worshiping something other than the triune God because we dumb down Christianity, religion, to something that we like better than what we see in the Bible. Because the Bible has hard edges. It has real truths. We see war. We see conflict. We see rape. We see uh, hedonism. We see idolatry. We see broken relationships and families. We see apostasy. We, be, we see betrayal. The Bible is a story about sin, but it's also a story about salvation. The Bible is a story about lasciviousness and lust, but it's also a story about love. The Bible is a story about crisis, but it's also a story about redemption and Christ coming again. So when Elisa asked me, how do you respond to all the bad news? We talked about in the earlier part of her program about a lot of the junk that's going on in the world. LGBTQIA, SJW, BLM, 
critical race theory, social-emotional learning, all the alphabet soup nonsense of the daily news. We talked about a variety of different things. And at the end of the show, Elisa asked, what do we do? What do you tell people when they ask you? Is it all hopeless? Is it lost? It feels like it is. It feels like the enemy has won. The United States doesn't even look like it did five seconds ago. We're no longer the land of the free and the home of the brave. We seem to be a land of the cowards who would rather be safe than free. We're no longer a nation that lives by its official motto, in God we trust. We're no longer a nation that even thinks the Pledge of Allegiance defines us. Allegiance to one nation under God? You mark my words. In the blink of an eye, that phrase will be removed from the pledge. We'll say that it's, it's, a, it's an argument for a theocracy and that it was wrong to ever be in the pledge in the first place. You, you, you wait. You'll hear the arguments. So in the midst of all of this craziness, those of us who know something's wrong, those of us who aren't celebrating this cultural collapse but are actually frightened by it, fearful of what's to come next, what's the next shoe to fall? How are the dominoes going to cascade across culture? I mean, women are losing their bathrooms and their showers, their sports and their scholarships. Women are losing their dignity. They're even losing their identity. Children no longer have legally protected innocence any longer. You have the United Nations arguing that the legal boundaries, the legal restrictions between adults and children when it comes to sexual intercourse should be eliminated. And by the way, that's been fact-checked on my Facebook as if that's a false statement. It is not. Go read the United Nations document. The fact-checkers are lying. They're saying, well, they didn't really mean that. This is taken out of context. Well, it says what it says. And if you're going to say that 18 is no longer the restriction, the boundary, the dividing line between children and adults when it comes to consensual sex, then if you say that and you don't give any other number, like it should be 17 or 16 or 14, if you just say, get rid of 18, and you're smart enough to be in the United Nations as an official, as a jurist, and this came out of the the Committee on Jurists, if you're smart enough to be in that group and you're going to take away the boundary, you're going to eliminate 18 and not specify that there's going to be another boundary, it's going to be 17, it's going to be 16, then I've got to ask you why. So don't tell me that this is fake news, fact checkers. It says what it says, and there's a reason it says what it says. So if you go to my Facebook and you see that that particular post of mine is fact checked, that's one good reason to read it further, because the fact checkers are purveyors of what's false in many situations today. Not always. Sometimes they're correct. But in so many situations, these progressive fact checkers are making decisions on politics, political correctness, rather than just the brutal, honest truth. They don't want to have the debate, and anybody who challenges anything like the official narrative on vaccines and COVID-19 and masks and climate change and the data with regard to are the temperatures increasing 
annually across the globe, or are they cooling annually across the globe? Is the polar ice cap diminishing, or is it stable? I mean, if you ask questions and you post something that shares data that's against the narrative, then you're maligned, you're canceled. So how do we respond to all this garbage when somebody walks into a Christian school and shoots Christians because of what they believe and what their teachers are teaching? And Joe Biden won't even acknowledge the names of the victims, but actually, actually celebrates the person and the group that actually perpetrated the crime. What are we to do? Well, in the last few minutes of the show, I'll give you the answer. The Bible is laden with stories of crisis. All right, we we see, uh, I'll go to the story of Joseph. You remember the story. Joseph's brothers hated him because their father Jacob showed favor to Joseph. Joseph was his favorite. So what did his brothers do? They hated him. They, they actually tried to kill him at first. They threw him into a pit, and they were going to leave him there. But one of the brothers felt guilty about that, so pulled him out, out of the pit when he saw what? A slave caravan traveling nearby. And he thought, well, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him to this this group of slave traders, these traffickers. We'll sell him to these people that are trafficking across the borders of Mexico and the United States, metaphorically speaking here. And that way we won't have blood on our hands, but we'll get rid of the kid. What happens to him later in life, we don't care. He can be sex trafficked. He can be used and abused in the minefields. He can be a drug trafficker. He can be a mule for the cartels. We don't care how these slave traders use him. They can keep him or they can sell him. We don't care, but at least we won't have blood on our hands. So you know the rest of the story. Jacob is distraught because his son Joseph is lost. But he doesn't know that Joseph is actually in Egypt now and that he has risen to power through the favor of Pharaoh, but more importantly by the grace of God, and that he's actually second in command only to Pharaoh himself. There's a drought, and the Israelites, the family of Jacob, all the boys travel down to Egypt to try to get some food, get some relief, buy some grain. And they confront Joseph, but they don't know for sure who he is. They, they haven't seen him for years. He used to be a little boy, now he's an adult. Used to be a shepherd, essentially, and now he is a king. He's got power. And you know the end of the story. When they finally figure out who Joseph is, they're scared to death. There's going to be vengeance, retribution. He'll kill us. Or at the very least, he's going to put us in prison. He'll put us in the same situation that we put him in. He's going to make us slaves. And Joseph says, no, what you intended for evil, God redeemed for good. What you intended for evil, God redeemed for good. God always redeems evil for good. He's sovereign, you're not. There's another story, Job. Job suffers crisis after crisis. Life is ugly. I won't go through all of the crises. I don't have time to do that. But at the end of the day, Job says, Though you slay me, yet will I worship you. One more time. Though you slay me, yet will I worship you. God is God. And Job acknowledges that he is not. So in these two stories, we see what others intend for evil, God always redeems for good. And 
though it appears that God is slaying us with the junk in our lives, we should yet worship him. So how do we respond? Have faith and trust that evil will be redeemed for good. Always is. That's the story of scripture. And that even though we have to suffer those things, though God slays us, we should still worship him. That's how we respond. And here's another one, the Apostle Paul. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. So all things work together for good. Though he slay us, yet should we worship him. And what others in turn intend for evil, God always redeems for good. These are lessons of Scripture. So when you're asked, how do you respond? How do you respond? You go to the promise of Christ himself. And I've mentioned this over and over again on this show. How do we respond to the junk that we have to live with today, to the collapse of Western civilization, of the American way of life, to the complete loss of any moral boundaries that are defined by the Bible? How do we respond to all of this? Well, we take confidence in the promises of Scripture, and I've already shared a couple with you, but the most important one is the promise of Jesus himself when he says the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail. I'll say it a third time. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his church. We know who wins. We know who wins. If Jesus is who he claims to be, and he is, then he can't break his promise. His promise is is as good as anything else we've ever heard. It can't be broken. We know who wins. The gates of hell will not prevail. God redeems every evil for good. Our job is to just fight with confidence and have faith that everything will be redeemed. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.